Now, it's, it's quite common that a diligent man, once converted, will begin to live a life according to wisdom and biblical ethics. This doesn't surprise us. As Pastor Wilson, Doug Wilson says, when a man comes to Christ and begins to obey him, this means working with his hands and living a quiet life in diligence. One of the consequences of this behavior is that his cocaine bill goes down. <laughs> it's true, right? If you're converted and you come to faith and you're pursuing wisdom and you're pursuing the Lord and, and you um, are investing in spiritual wealth, what often happens is material wealth. Prosperity is common to those who obey God, pursue wisdom, and pursue covenantal faithfulness. Deuteronomy 29.9 says, Therefore keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. Now, we reject the prosperity gospel. There are no promises of prosperity in, in the sense that no matter what, every Christian is going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. <laughs> that, that is not what I'm saying. But there is, quite often a connection between covenantal faithfulness to God and material blessing. When we are investing in heaven, uh, we, we don't just gain heaven, we gain the world. This, this is quite often how God works. This is how he works through most of our lives, most churches, most ages. Now, the people of God are not guaranteed material blessing. For that, read Job, read Ecclesiastes. But pursuing wisdom while keeping the Ten Commandments, while keeping the Sermon on the Mount, will generally lead to both spiritual and material prosperity. It, it, look around, <laughs> right? These are, uh, this is a church full of people with a great deal of spiritual wealth and material wealth. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. Proverbs 22.4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Progressive sanctification and prosperity generally go hand in hand, which shouldn't surprise us. When you buy a house, no one is surprised over time that you have to replace the roof. When a man buys a horse and feeds it, the horse produces manure. This doesn't shock anyone, right? This is the cause and effect of the world in which we live. Um, I remember my, my son, I don't even remember which one it was, but was quite shocked to discover that every time you throw a hammer in the air, it comes down. So you better be careful where you're standing. <laughs> this, is, this is the world in which we live. When a redeemed man pursues the triune God honestly and humbly, he should not be surprised when the blessings begin to flow. And they will. But there are a great number of dangers here. There's a lot of danger in material wealth. We too easily and too frequently forget the giver in all that he gives us. Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 14 explains it perfectly. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." Now, when this prosperity comes, when we pursue the Lord, if we don't continue to keep his commandments, what will eventually happen is that we will, the swag will sway our hearts, and we think that the swag came to us because we are wonderful. The swag came to us because we are so wise and so smart. But that, that's, that's not how we got it. How, 
when a man is prospered, when a man prospers, who prospered him? It is a very dangerous thing to be wealthy. It's very dangerous to be wealthy. Um, this is, um, you know, the, there is a proverb, I think, or maybe it was Paul. I can't remember. But just let me, don't, be, don't, don't let me be too rich. Don't let me be too poor. Just let me keep, keep me right in the middle. And um, that's a prayer that I've had for years. Let me just go right down the middle. Not too rich, not too poor, right? I, I do like eating steaks, but I don't want to forget the Lord. And this is a prayer that we, all of us, especially in the American, modern American church, church ought to pray often. One of our central temptations is always to forget God and develop an undue fondness for his stuff. Consumerism is a great evil. Certainly to love the swag for its own sake is a great sin. Money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's true. When you have the means to attain cars and homes and food and fun and etc., you are apt to forget the Lord. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 25 There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So even when you work hard, even when you get the paycheck, even when you take it to Costco and you buy really good uh, brisket and you bring it home and you eat it, the reason that it tastes good, the reason you can enjoy it is because the Lord has even given you the enjoyment of it. Have you ever, if if you've ever known a rich person, I've known several, nothing satisfies them sometimes. They don't even have the, the ability to enjoy all of the swag that they have. And it's because they're not, right? God has denied them that. It's, it's God who even gives us the ability to enjoy the stuff that he gives us. Now, I want to just argue that, you know, stuff, materialism, this is, we can be quite spiritual in the modern church, which is funny because we're surrounded by stuff. <laughs> we're a very materialistic people. And, and, and this is not wickedness in itself. We have nothing to repent of for being rich. Uh, the Marxists can say whatever they want. There's nothing to repent of for simply having stuff. God likes stuff. He made all this stuff. He made all this stuff and stood over all this stuff and said, this is very good. He likes it. He likes gold. He likes olive oil. He likes flowers and mountains and animals covered in meat and leather. He made yeast and barley and hops. Why? Because he loves beer. He made granite, he made oak, he made diamonds, he made the marriage bed and the hearth and fruit trees and the deep sea full of lobsters. I don't know what else is down there, but man, it's full of lobsters, I love it. He made high waves and buoyant wood that we can use to ride those waves. He loves stuff. God loves matter so much that he became matter to rescue matter from the curse of the fall. We must repent of trying to be more spiritual than God. Pastor Wilson, again, in his book on the Incarnation and Christmas, that most material of God's wonders, he says this, Our good God, our overflowing God, our God of yes and amen, has always been able to promise far more than we are able to believe. I'm not here speaking of unbelief or of hard hearts, which is another problem. I'm speaking here of a true and sincere sincere faith, a God-given faith, but one which is still finite and which God loves to bury under an avalanche of promises. We serve and worship the God who overwhelms, who delights to overwhelm. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, a cascading waterfall of infinite pleasures. No top, no bottom, no back, no front, no sides, nothing but infinite pleasures in motion, and every one of those pleasures is attached to his promises. That is the God that you serve. That is the God that you are called to imitate. At God's right hand are pleasures, and not just spiritual ones. Remember, his sign of the covenant is water and bread and wine. 
He uses stuff (laughs) because he likes stuff. These physical objects all have a spiritual significance and bear the promise of God, the pleasures at his right hand. So too does pepperoni pizza. This is, this is why he uses food. You're supposed to go home and you're sitting there and you open the box from, um, from Costco, you get that big pizza and you think, man, God is good. He is here with me. And man, pepperoni, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I recently just had, uh, yeah, I lifted a kettlebell. I bought these kettlebells now and I was like, what a crazy object a kettlebell is. God, like, not only made, the, you know, whatever it's made out of, iron or whatever, but he gave us the ability to shape it and use it the way that, that it is used. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. We must not be dualistic. We must not reject the swag. But equally important, we must not make the swag an idol. That's what we are prone to do. Drive into one of these ditches. We reject the swag, and we want to be more spiritual than God, or we set up the swag um, you know, on the throne of our hearts, and we bow down and worship it. God so loved the world he gave. Now, we could go beyond that and talk about what he gave, but just the fact that he loved it, and because he loved it, he gave. That's the God that we serve. That's how he expresses his love. His love is expressed in an outpouring of spiritual and material wealth is yours. That's what this is ultimately about. Are you expressing love like God does? And, it, and I'm not just saying give away your money. I'm saying in spiritual and material wealth, is, it, is your love for one another, your love for him, expressed in an outpouring? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7 and 9. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now, (laughs) do you love one another to the extent that you're willing to become poor to make another person rich? Right? You see some poor schlub on the side of the road, and you think, you know what? For no real reason that I can explain, here's my car, my house, and all of my belongings. Can you imagine loving someone that much? He became poor so that through his poverty, you all might become rich. Now, do you feel rich? I'm not talking Jeff Bezos rich. <laughs> right? I, do you feel rich? If, if you haven't, I would, I would suggest for a lot of us, perhaps booking a trip to Juarez. Just walk around. Go to Rivne. Walk around there, Rivne, Ukraine. You ought to feel like Jeff Bezos. <laughs> the Lord has blessed you greatly. And it's, and it's not just the swag. I'm going to talk a lot about the swag. There's a lot of good swag. But you are, you are wise people. You are spiritually wise and, and mature and sanctified Christians. The Lord made himself poor to make you rich. Paul commands us in Ephesians 5.1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be so willing to pour out the blessings on others that it makes you poorer. (laughs) So here's what we're going to do after this introduction. We're going to look at, at Paul's warning, a very specific warning to Christians just like us, wealthy ones. And then what we're going to do is look at Boaz and Ruth and see an example of the kind of grateful consumer that the Lord wants us all to be. 
So before we get to the example, let's turn to the warning. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 to 19. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. And this is what we read. This is a message to you and to me. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What are you investing your spiritual wealth in? What are you investing your material wealth in? The United States is wealthy. It's wealthy by any metric. I don't know any emperor in the history of the world that could have a band playing in, in the back of his car, whatever he wanted, as much as he wanted, wherever he went. Right? And, and I, I love this kind of statistic. I, I was reading a study, like, if you lifted all of us up and put us in Victoria, Victoria, uh, the Victorian period in England, you know how many house servants we would have? You'd have three, probably. You're like, no, that's crazy. You're like, well, what do you call the dishwasher? Right? What do you call the wash machine? What do you call the vacuum? If, if you took the material wealth we had and you transported it to other times, you'd be shocked by how many people work for you. <laughs> right? <laughs> Napoleon was great, but he could never turn to somebody and be like, you know what I want to hear is, is a, some pieces by Bach. Just play it for me right now. You know what? It's really loud. I'm going to put an earpiece in and I'm going to listen to Bach and you listen to something else. Think how, right? No emperor in the history of the world has been able to do that. If you study history at all, which I do, and I love it, there are two things that rich people always do. There's two things that define the rich. They eat meat every day, and they own land. Now, I won't embarrass us. How many of you have eaten, when's the last time you didn't eat meat, right? We have to, like, purposely not eat meat. We have to, like, literally avoid it because there's so much of it. Yeah, when I heard that, I was like, are you sure it's not eat meat every meal? (laughs) Oh, it's just every day. So those of you who own property, those of you who eat meat every day, you are the 1%, not just of the present age, but of human history. I I want to be very clear here. When Paul is talking about rich Christians, he's talking about you. He's talking about you, and he's talking about me. Now, the affluence and comfort and disposable income and wealth enjoyed by the average American household are among the greatest the world has ever seen. Paul warns Timothy about the spiritual state of wealthy believers And so this is a word to the Western church, to you and I. Wealth is a source of influence and security. With the way the world looks up to the affluent, it is easy to believe the illusion that um, it projects and trust in one's material prosperity. Look at how wealthy I am. Look at how wise I am. Look at how good I am. You get out your 401k and you take a look at it and you're just like, man, I know what I'm doing. You're like, well, you know, somewhere someone knows what they're doing and you just happen to invest in it, but... Right? But we, I easily think like I'm some sort of day trader when I see my 401k. Like, look at how smart I am with my money. Somewhere, someone far away is spending my money, and I don't know who it is, but I like to take credit for it. And this is what we do. This is what we do. Somebody, compliment, somebody complimented me on both my cars the other day. I was like, man, you're driving really nice cars. I was like, yeah, I am these days. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. They were both given to me. So I can't even take credit for those. <laughs> But it was funny. For a moment, I was like, I was accepting the compliment. I was like, man, I'm really good at finding cars, aren't I? Uh, oh, yeah, no, wait. <laughs> they were gifts. And that's what we, we forget the giver because we are, our eyes are on the swag. Our eyes are on the gifts. 
Now, wealthy Christians must sensibly avoid the perils of haughtiness and dependence on wealth. Paul states plainly that the wealthy Christian's duty and attitude toward prosperity comes from a correct understanding of God. If, if you have a, a correct understanding of the Lord Jesus, then you will be able to deal with the swag appropriately. The gift must not be confused with the giver. Gifts are signs pointing to the giver. Every gift that you have, right? There was that video years ago that a church put out at Christmas time, and everything in his house was wrapped as a present. I would try that one time to teach my kids lessons, but I would go broke from buying all the wrapping paper, which is itself a lesson. <laughs> I can't even wrap all the stuff in my house because I'd go broke buying paper. I wonder where all the money went for the paper. Anyway, that I wrapped it in the first time. We are unbelievably blessed. There are gifts everywhere, and all of them are pointing to the giver. All of them. Recipients of God's love and grace enjoy that love and grace only when they make use of it in the ways that image the divine giver. This is what I was talking about before. You can have stuff, and you can use it, but if you're using it apart from recognizing where it came from, if you're not imitating the Lord with it, eventually what's going to happen is you're going to lose any enjoyment in it. It will cease to be pleasurable. And any time we get ourselves into, in, into trouble with overspending, overeating, overdrinking, what happens, right? There's a certain amount of wine everyone enjoys, and then there's a certain amount of wine no one enjoys. <laughs> you don't enjoy it, your spouse doesn't enjoy it, your kids don't enjoy it. You can try to suck more out of this life than there is. And for us, right, life is a buffet. And, and we think, wait, where are the pork chops? Why isn't there more, 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 more? And we have become this way because the Lord has blessed us so much. The fact that gifts are given to be enjoyed kills excessive self-denial as well. It's an, there is no ethic of no, no, no. The fact that, right, he, Paul says it, he gave you the gifts to enjoy them. And, and so what he doesn't want is, to, is for you to have an excessive amount of self-denial. Self-denial in itself, all by itself, is not, is not an ethical code that the Lord wants. When he wants you to, de he, to deny yourself, it's because he wants you to say yes to something else. Say no to self so you can say yes to other things. He never wants you just to say no to yourself, as if that's somehow a success. When we say no to things, it's so that we can say yes to the right things. He does not want an ethic of no, 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 no. He wants an ethic of yes, 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 but you have to learn what to say yes to. God ordained material things for enjoyment. Therefore, he looked on his creation and said, this is very good. By saying God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, it slays the ascetic approach of the Christian life. He gave us things to enjoy them. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by de devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Everything is to be received with thanksgiving, and that makes it enjoyable, that makes it pleasurable, that makes it good. Paul makes positive and practical demands upon the wealthy Christians whose actions must be characterized by the same grace and generosity that made them wealthy. If, if you are made wealthy by God's grace and generosity and, are, and don't turn around and thereby become gracious and generous, you're not, right, you're not using the swag the way that it was meant to be used. 
the accumulated wealth of material goods, the gracious gifts of a good God are supposed to be used to attain greater spiritual wealth. You use the material wealth, you invest it, so that what you increase in is spiritual wealth. That's why he's given it to you. Wealthy Christians are to put their material wealth to use in an effort to imitate God, honor what God honors, and amass spiritual wealth. I I love it if all of you were the Jeff Bezos of heaven. You got there, and it was like, we can't, wow, we had palaces, but now we, we actually had to clear out Japan so we could build you a palace all by yourself because you have so much wealth here. Now, can you imagine that? You go up to heaven, and they're like, man, you... You accomplish a great deal down there. Come. You're like, oh, look at this nice condo over here. This is sweet. And he's like, no, 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 no. You own those condos (laughs) in heaven. Come. There's a palace for you further up the mountain. That's what we're talking about. He wants to bless you spiritually. And so what he does is he gives you material wealth so that you have even more to invest to amass a spiritual fortune. Paul is calling us to a stewardship of material wealth. Those blessed with material wealth are to be responsible administrators of it, stewards, investing it in spiritual wealth, using it the way God would use it. If God sat down at your kitchen table with you and he had your checkbook and he had all of your your assets there, what would he say to do with them? What would he tell you to do with them? That's how you're supposed to think about them. When you have the family meeting and you're sitting down and you're thinking about the budget, are you thinking about it as if the Lord Jesus is sitting with you saying, what are we going to invest all this swag in? Or you're like me. Well, I wonder where we can go this year. Should we go camping or should we get a hotel? Right? We, we start thinking about our own kingdoms. We start thinking about our own pleasures. We start thinking about how the, all this swag is going to make us feel better and, and enjoy ourselves. And we don't think as much as we ought to. What would the Lord do with it? Now, as I've already said, if it's, if you, oh, you know what he would do is just give it all away, all the time. That's not always what he would do, right? Asceticism is not something I, I want to promote in any way, shape, or form. But we have to think, what would the Lord do with all this swag? Now, what he would do is demonstrated to us in Ruth chapter 2. And I'm going to go through this the story that was read for us earlier, because there is a great deal to be learned from it. Turn now to Ruth chapter 2 with me. We're going to go through a few verses. We're going to look. We're going to look at what a wealthy Christian is supposed to do with the swag. The widow Ruth had little to offer Naomi, but what she did have, she offered in abundance. And this is what I'm going to say. She, has, she does not have a lot of material wealth, Ruth. She has a great deal of spiritual wealth. And what she is willing to do is pour it out in abundance upon Naomi. She has loyalty. She has companionship. She has compassion. And compassion is when you make someone else's circumstances your circumstances. That guy owes someone $100. I'm going to now transfer his his loss of $100 to myself. That person is crying. I'm now going to go and I'm going to cry with them. That's what compassion means. You're taking this person's status, this person's circumstances, and you're taking it upon yourself. Ruth has loyalty, she has companionship, she has compassion, and she pours it out on Naomi. Ruth, chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, who do you know in your life that you would say that to? Hopefully at least your spouse. Okay, we'll start there. <laughs> it's a good start. But do you know somebody, do you know other people who you would pour out your loyalty and your companionship to this extent? Where you go, I go. Where you die, I die. Cheek by jowl, it's you and me. That kind of loyalty is very hard to find. We're a transient people, aren't we? We move where we want, we work where we want, we go to coffee where we want. We don't see each other that often, maybe once a week. Who would we turn to and pour this kind of spiritual wealth on? Who is it that we know? Who is it that we would bless in this way? Ruth is young and she is strong. She goes early to glean, to work all day, to gather food for Naomi and herself. So what she does have is strength, and she's willing to give it away. In Ruth chapter 2, verse 5 through 7, we read, Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant, who was in charge of the reapers, answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves. After the reapers. So she came, and as she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. You know what Ruth has? She doesn't have a lot, but what she has is strength. What she has is a strong back, and she's willing to use it to bless Naomi in a cascade of generosity and grace. She is spending her strength and vitality to serve others. She's laying her life down for another. Now, remember, in Ruth's days, those are the days of the judges. This is exactly the same time period as the end of the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, in chapter 19 and 21, we read something very interesting. We read that it is not safe for women in Israel. We read about the Levite's concubine who was raped and murdered. We read about the um, young ladies who were stolen from the field to, give, to be given to the tribe of Benjamin. This is why Boaz is talking about the fact that he, he's saying, he made provision. I told my people, keep your hands off her. Watch out for her. Because a great deal can happen to a young, attractive woman who's a foreigner, I might add. Who cares about foreigners? Who cares about women? And who cares about foreign women? She's out in the field where all these men are working. It's a dangerous thing that she is doing. And she's doing it because she loves Naomi. She's blessing Naomi with what she has, her own life. That's all she's got. She's laying it at Naomi's feet. Boaz provides for a pretty, virtuous, vulnerable outsider who is literally risking her virtue in life by working out in the open fields. Boaz says to Ruth in chapter 2, verse 9, Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. I have not charged the young men, I have, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessel and drink what the young men have drawn. Don't keep your eyes on the bushes where there might be people hiding. <laughs> keep your eyes on the field and work. It's safe here for you, he says. He's, he's creating a place for her to work and to serve and to give her life for Naomi in, in, in an environment in which it's safe. So he's providing this for her. He's providing for her who's providing for Naomi. This now, now we're starting to see how both spiritual and material wealth is supposed to be used. He controls those young men. He tells them what to do. And he says, don't touch her and give her all the water she wants. And what does she do with the safety and security? She lays her life down for Naomi. Now, Boaz knows 
of Ruth's grace and generosity toward Naomi. It's partially why he's responding the way he's responding. He's seen the grace that she's poured out on Naomi. Everyone's heard about it. He says in chapter 2, verse 11 through 13, Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. All of it. I heard how generous you have been. I have heard how loyal you have been. I've heard how you have poured out what little you have on Naomi. And now here, what I'm going to do is I'm going to honor what God honors. I'm going to love what God loves. And you don't have a lot of bread, but my goodness, I do. And so you see, he's using the material wealth he has to bless those people who don't have it, but who do have a great deal of spiritual wealth. He's honoring what God honors. He's loving what God is loving. Boaz recognizes the grace in what Ruth has done. She has found favor in his eyes because Naomi has found the same favor in Ruth's eyes. Right? What's pleasant about Naomi? She's a bitter old woman who has nothing. And Ruth loves her anyway. And Boaz sees this and he says, yes, yes, gents, get her whatever she needs. This is the kind of person we want to pour our material wealth out on. Now this word in, in Hebrew is yesed. It's a, it's a word in the Old Testament that means loving kindness. It's, this, it, it's, a, it's a word that's used to describe God a lot. <laughs> and that's what it means, the favor, that favor that she has found in his eyes, the favor that Naomi's found in her eyes, this grace, that, that, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about agape love. They're talking about divine love. They're talking about this love that transcends. There's no reason that Ruth should love Naomi, except that she is like her God. Selfless one-anothering, which makes up second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we see here. They have found this kind of favor, this kind of love in one another, and they're pouring it on. They, they are not holding back. Boaz seeks the Lord's favor for Ruth. He says, yes, may the Lord bless you, and since I serve him, I'm going to be a part of that blessing. He takes it upon himself. It's not like when you see somebody in need and you're like, yeah, the Lord bless and keep you, man. Good luck with that. I'll, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. He says, yeah, may the Lord bless you. Watch. And he gets out his pocketbook and he writes a massive check. He says, yes, watch out for her. Give her whatever she needs. Invite her to lunch. Take care of her. He's directing all of his people. It's harvest time. Do you think he has better things to do with his time? No, because he cares about what God cares about. He loves what God loves in a cascade of generosity and grace. After allowing Ruth to glean in safety, he lets her eat with them at his own expense. Boaz then directs his employees to separate grain from among the sheaves, being covertly generous. He doesn't want to shame her. He doesn't want to just walk up to her and be like, yeah, you look real poor. Here's a giant bag. He does this, he does this tricky thing now. Now, when you're out harvesting, the men are cutting and the women are gathering. In, in uh, agrarian cultures, everybody at harvest time is in the fields. And so he's actually directing the women to go to what they've already gathered and pull some of it out and throw it down for her in such a way that it looks like it's just lying there because he doesn't want to embarrass her. And yet, what is he doing? He's getting the ladies involved in his generosity. Now, now, right, imagine you have a boss who's like, hey, you know what we're going to do today? Just open the store and find some people on the road and bring them in here and start giving away all my stuff. Give it to them. Just give it to them. Like, wouldn't that be delightful to be the one <laughs> who's the instrument, right? Oh, Boaz has the stuff. He's just going to give it away. And now you get to participate in this. So he's creating a whole community of generosity. He's keeping the young men away from her. He's telling the young ladies to go towards her. And what he's doing is he's welcoming her into the community. 
This is what generosity looks like. This is what grace looks like. Gleaning is a kind of tithing. After you've collected what you're going to collect, you don't try to get every last little morsel because what you want to do is you want to provide for those who are poor. So he's calculated his tithe. He says, let her, let her have it. And then on top of that, he goes to what he has already collected and takes from there. He's now reaching into his pocket and finding how much money he's got. Have it all. I got 500 bucks in my pockets. I know I already gave you five, but here's another 500. He's really pouring it on. He's imitating the generosity that, that Ruth has shown to Naomi. They're both now, right? Now they're like honoring one another, and, and it just increases and increases and increases. And now she comes and throws herself down at his feet. This is what generosity does. It creates a community of agape love. It creates a community where there's all kinds of one anothering, where everyone's tripping over themselves to one another, one another. How can I honor you? How can I bless you? Seeing Ruth's love, Boaz expresses his gratitude for that divine-like love shown to his distant relative, Naomi, and then invites others into it while working to counter any malice or evil that might be directed at Ruth. Boaz reverses the broken pattern of human relationships and easy, safe selfishness that comes so easily to all of us. He doesn't want to humiliate her, making her look like she's taking charity. Now, this is actually what Jesus does at the, at the wedding of Cana. Right? There's that young couple, and they've run out of wine. Now, how embarrassed do you think they're going to be? How embarrassed do you think their parents are going to be, the whole community? And Jesus doesn't make a big show out of it. He's, he does what Boaz does. He does it on the sly. And this is actually what Paul Miller, who wrote a commentary on Ruth, had to say about, about this connection. The young couple, instead of being embarrassed at their failure to have enough wine, are honored by their generosity in saving the best wine for last. If the focus had been on Jesus, the couple would look like a failure. Our best love is often hidden. It would be easier for Boaz if he just gave Ruth extra grain quietly at the end of the day. He risks his worker's resentment because he wants to include her. In particular, his command, pull out some from the bundles, is directed toward the women because it is their job to create the bundles from what the men have cut. He wants the women to enter into the, his welcoming of Ruth. He pushes the men away from her and the women toward her. But publicly giving, by publicly giving Ruth food, he gives her not only food but also friends, thus covering her with his wings. What is the likely effect on his harvesters as they stealthily pull stalks out of the sheaves and drop them on the ground? It would transform the day, making it almost fun. The boss is encouraging them to give away his stuff. They look good, and it doesn't cost them anything, and the result is what? Ruth now has a community. Now, Boaz has material wealth, and what is he using it to do? To feed himself? Right? Is he out there just like as stingy as possible, maintaining every ounce of grain for himself? Boaz uses his material wealth to imitate God's generosity and grace. Boaz uses his wealth to build community, agape community, a divine community. By including the men and women in his welcoming generosity towards Ruth, he's invested everything in spiritual wealth. And it's, look at the return. It's not just him who's gaining from it. Everyone gets something out of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 through 8. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Ruth did not sow sparingly with what little she had. She did not sow reluctantly or under compulsion. She was a cheerful giver giver, and abounded in good works. Boaz did not sow sparingly with his material wealth. He did not sow reluctantly or under compulsion. He was a cheerful giver and abounded in good works. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. This generosity goes beyond not judging, not condemning, and merely forgiving personal injuries and injustices. Like the golden rule, it seeks the positive good of others. It's an investment. It is measured out well. It is pressed down and shaken so that every conceivable space can be filled. And what they're saying is the one who's doing the pouring then has it returned back to them. Now, how does a a community grow more prosperous? How does it grow in spiritual wealth? How does it grow in material wealth? By investing what we already have in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, what does this look like for you? Right? Most of us are not farmers. Nielsen is, but he's not here. What does this look like? What does it look like to do what Ruth has done, to do what Boaz has done? Well, here's a question. Have you noticed that a young couple has given away their Friday night to watch another couple's kids? Now, if you pay attention, you can see that this happens. So what would Boaz do in that situation? Well, that couple who gave up their Friday night, he would take their kids the next Friday night. He would honor what God honors. Do you know a young family whose anniversary is coming up? They're fifth. Now, I've even been married long enough now when I hear a fifth anniversary, I'm like, oh, that's nice. That's a good start. But what would, right? But if you got swag... How did Jesus act at a wedding? How does Jesus honor a, a, a wedding ceremony? How, does he, how would he honor an anniversary? Do you know when one another's anniversaries are? Birthdays. Is there a young family who is doing it, right? They are pouring themselves into their large family. Has, do you have the swag to pick up the bill on their, some of their curriculum for their homeschooling? This is what I'm talking about. It's not a mystery. How to bless one another is, is not hard <laughs> if you are asking, if you're talking to one another and getting to know one another, and if you're just in conversations, as most of you always have with one another, you hear all the time, you know what? God, what, God likes what you are doing. That pleases him. And you know what I'm going to do? I got some extra swag, so I'm going to throw some swag at it. You know what the Lord does? The Lord likes your honesty. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to be honest with you. I saw how you forgave that person, and they didn't deserve it. And so what it inspired me, I'm going to honor what he honors, and I'm going to forgive you next time even more readily. Like, this is what it means to spend the, the abundant amount of wealth that we've been given. And what happens is, is as we invest it in his kingdom, it continues to grow and continues to prosper and builds itself up in love. Who can you bless? Right? If all you have is what Ruth had, look at what all she had was what? Herself. And she gave it away. Boaz had a great deal more. <laughs> but they both gave it away. And, and what you see with their relationship, now it's a marriage that it, it results in, but the, same, the concept applies in, to community generally. 
as they get going here, they just cannot stop themselves, honoring one another and honoring one another. And Ruth, all she has is herself, and she comes and lays it down at Boaz's feet. It says, I'll follow thee, my Lord, throughout the world, like Julieta Romeo. And it's gorgeous and beautiful, and you just see the love that they have for one another gets increases and increases and increases, and the unity increases and increases and increases. Now, if you're doing this in a, in a place like ours, it's not a marriage, but if you have friends, you, you are one anothering one another, the amount of love, the amount of unity, the, the amount of agape love continues to grow and grow and grow, and this is what I'm talking about. You're investing in it. And, and if, we, if we invest in what God loves, if we follow him and doing the things he does, the way he does them, is he going to bless that or not? But if we continue to take the swag, if we continue to take the spiritual wealth, and we send it only on ourselves, what is he going to do to that? Right? How long is that lampstand going to stay? We have, at times over the years, killed ourselves coming up with programs to try to love one another. I've been in charge of a lot of them. For a time, they worked a little bit. But, but what really gets ministry going, right? I'm here to equip you for the work of ministry. And what that does not mean is start assigning people to one another's homes to have meals on Sunday nights, which was a thing that I did years and years ago. This is what I want you to do. I want you to read this, and I want you to find out what God loves. What does he honor? And, and what I want you to do is take all of your spiritual and financial wealth and invest in that. Honor that. Praise it. Devote yourself to it. Pour the swag on. And, and as you do that, what you will see is you're pursuing the triune God. It's not going to come back to you empty. Because when you're united with him, nothing ever goes out from us and comes back empty. That's, that's it. <laughs> Community in a nutshell. The Lord wants you to be like him. Find out what he is like and do likewise. When it comes to community, is his hand open or closed? Is he, is he ready with a compliment? Is he ready with a, a word of blessing? Is he ready right, to provide for our every need? Do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of Boaz and Ruth. We thank you for the ministry of Paul, Lord God, and for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that as um, we receive an overflow of abundant blessing, both spiritual and material, I pray, Lord God, that we would go from here and that we would invest in, the, uh, in your kingdom, that we would honor what you honor, that we would love what you love. Lord God, that we would um, not hold back, but be generous and gracious and, and grateful for all that you have blessed us with. We thank you and we praise you and amen.